DCM works. That still only counts as one. Okay, guys, I'm going to keep this brief because it's really hot in uh, Brisbane at the moment. We just got back from Melbourne. Um, this episode was recorded in Melbourne with uh, Gabe uh, from Sans Pants, and you know, you'll know you sort of learn who he is as we go through. Um, but the big takeaway from this one is to make sure you go check out his stuff. It's awesome, and we love it. Uh, and I wanted to just say beforehand, we took the minimal equipment we could with us, so there's no pop filters or anything. I've done my best to scrub the audio. It took me a few hours, but um, hopefully it's not too bad. And yeah. Enjoy. This is Christopher Walken, here to warn you that this contains some explicitly foul language. And if you don't like that, then I'll put my foot in your throat. The soundtrack's amazing. Yeah. The visuals are very, like, well done. And, like, the gameplay is super fun. <laughs> and, like, because those three things are there, it's, like, it's exceptionally good. I could do it in a heartbeat and make millions, but it would feel like gouging my soul out. Yeah. Jurassic Park's a little more like DDR. If Shrek is a very tough creature, can he actually own land and want to kick them off? Where did that come from? You have to make a lot of shit up to make good art. Yeah. That's that's just the truth. Hey guys, this is the DCM Works interview series. My name is David DCM, creative director, lead writer of DCM Works, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. As always, we ask our guest our opening question. So, guest, who are you? Who am I? Um, my <laughs> name is Gabriel Bergmoser. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a Melbourne-based writer, um, author, playwright, prospective screenwriter, um, and I regularly appear on Sandspence Radio Movie Maintenance, Excellent. where we fix bad movies. Correct. Um, so, I wanted to touch on you mentioned in there the the, the Sandspence stuff. So, I want to talk yeah. about that really quickly before we get into everything else. Um, so, your role on that show was sort of. Um, you tend to pitch various scripts that you've written about, you know, prospective films you'd like to see made, or um, you deconstruct other films. So what kind of, in that experience, what's your favorite part of that show? Oh, man. Well, like, yeah, because Movie Maintenance sort of started out when, because I was involved in Sans Pants Radio way back at the start. We're talking like 2011 when they first started recording. Mm-hmm. And um, on the show that would eventually become Plumbing the Death Star, which is probably their most well-known show, um, mm-hmm. which was at the time called An Hour of Your Life You Never Get Back. Yes. Which was just, we just talked randomly about film. And then I kind of fell out of the picture for a while, and Zamet asked me back for movie maintenance, which they wanted to launch. And the idea was, you know, the first seven episodes, we would fix the Star Wars prequels. So yes. we'd take... We'd had a different guest every episode, and basically we would get to come in and pitch our ideal version of a Star Wars prequel. Mm. And after that, I sort of, like, fell into it more consistently. And so the, the fun of movie maintenance is that basically... It started out where we choose a bad movie, and so, for example, starting with Star Wars, and we would pitch a better version of it. Yeah. So it would be, you can make huge sweeping changes, rewrite the whole script or whatever the hell you want, mm-hmm. or you can just make slight tweaks yeah, to make it better. just a little adjustments. Yeah. yeah. And it ended up being really, really fun. So it was things like, um, things like I've always kind of had ideas in my head about Dexter, which was a show I really loved, but eventually went up the shitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, went off the rails oh a bit. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. And I, I always had this idea that like the, se- the fifth season of Dexter could have been so good. Mm with relatively minor tweaks to what they were doing and the formula they had. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of one of the early ones I did. And it sort of went from there. And then at first it was just like a broadly speaking, this is kind of what I would have done in Dex season five. And then it sort of evolved into like before, instead of like coming in and just sort of pitching a version, Mm. 
I'd go away and I'd kind of write like these dot points, I guess, almost treatments of yeah, the, these the, films. The so, story beats. Yeah, you know. so they'd be like rewrites or sequels. So we did a, like, there was a Jaws sequel. Mm-hmm. There was a Hannibal Book 5. It's stopping movies after a while. It, it brought it, it just down. sort of, it yeah, just, yeah, yeah. TV shows. And it's, and... Yeah, it's, it's really, really fun because it's it's sort of like, I guess the best way to describe it is like, it's like fan fiction without the stigma of being fan fiction. Because you're not yep. actually sitting down and writing a full script or writing a full story and everything. It's just like, you know, spend a couple of hours, you take a story that you really love or an entry in a franchise you really love but could be better, and you get to sort of rework it, I guess, you in can your play, own style. You can play in that fashion. space. And it's, you know? it's really, really fun. Mm. Like, it's... Because you're not writing anything that's like, you know, you're going you're gonna to necessarily make or produce or anything like that. Mm. But in terms of just, like, getting to, I guess play in the playground of franchises and worlds that you really enjoy. The Star Wars ones are particularly really, really fun. Yeah, they're quite, they're quite riveting because you can tell that all of you really... Oh, we all really love Star it, Wars, yeah. which is... I mean, obviously, that's how the podcast started, so... Yeah, exactly. You know, so you it's, the... it's really cool because it's like, you know, you get to go away and, like, it's like Zamet gets to do his ideal Boba Fett film, I did my ideal Obi-Wan film, and it's cool because you get to take your favourite characters and be like, what story would I want to tell with them? Mm. It's... It's yeah, it's like one of the most enjoyable things. Like, I, I really love doing it. I wanted to touch on... Um, you mentioned that your, your Obi-Wan... Uh, anthology story that you pitched. Yeah. Um, in that particular one, it's sort of this Wild West. Um, it, re- it really reminds me of like a fistful of dollars kind of style. Yeah, it's very yeah. gritty. Um, what's what was sort of your inspiration for, for coming into that one? Because it's quite you know it's not it's not everyone's first reaching point for if they wanted to do an anthology film. So yeah, where, where did that well, sort of come from for you? For me, like personally, okay, this this can sound really weird, but like I've I've got a really weird relationship with the Star Wars prequels. In that, I mean, episode one is appalling. We know that. And look, I love the originals and stuff, but I think it was Zamet said on one of the episodes of Movie Maintenance that the perfect age to watch and enjoy the Star Wars prequels is 12 because you're old enough to kind of grasp the weird shit political stuff, but young enough to still be entertained by crazy CGI and backflipping lightsaber fights and all of that. And I particularly remember watching episode two when I would have been 11 or 12 when it came out. And I remember, like, my friends at school and I, we, we were just, like, obsessively in love with it. And it was only kind of <laughs> later that you realize you start... I mean, at the time, it was obvious that the love story was kind of trite and that Anakin was a bit shit and all mm. this stuff. But, like, episode two and three in particular are two films I have, like, a real nostalgic yeah, love for. Yeah, because at the time, like, you're, the time, you're, in, you're in it, you know? Yeah. yeah, and I know now they're not. Like, they don't compare the originals. We know that everything bad that you can say about the Star Wars prequels has been said. Mm-hmm. But what I find interesting now is that we're so far disconnected from the crushing disappointment of those films <laughs> that I feel like we're at a point where we can start to reevaluate what they did well. And yes. one of the things I think was particularly excellent was the characterization of Obi-Wan. Mm. And I read this great review that talked about how the Ewan McGregor version of Obi-Wan is essentially, you know, for in, for, in one way or another, he's basically the Han Solo of the prequel trilogy. Not because he's Han Solo, but because he's the, he's the funniest character. He's got the best lines. Yep. He's kind of a badass. He's a bit of a lone wolf. And yep. not that he is Han Solo, but that he sort of actually fulfills that role in a really yeah. interesting way. He, he takes the, he lets, he lets us hang our lampshade and go, here's a guy who yeah. knows how ridiculous this all is. And I don't know, Obi-Wan, I don't know if it, this was just Ewan McGregor's performance, but I love the fact that he was this character who, even though he was this straight-laced, serene Jedi master, particularly you see in the particularly in episode two, there is a bit of an edge to him. Yeah. Like he walks into that bar in um in Coruscant and he's just like, I'm going to have a drink. He I'm going to go drink. up, and he's just he he doesn't like he's he's a bit of a badass. He's a bit of a rogue. He's got that Qui Gon Jinn, um, roguish element to him. So like I don't know. I I thought Obi Wan was always a really really good character, and I think that like Ewan McGregor wasn't totally served by that film. So I guess my take going into that was mm. that I thought it'd be really, really cool to, I guess, pitch this hypothetical film where you could give Ewan McGregor the chance mm. to really 
be Obi-Wan. It's like, well, what do you do? You do Tatooine. Well, what's the, what can you do with Tatooine? You make it a fucking Western. Absolutely. And then you sort of think, well, so what's the, what's the conflict? What's the interesting thing? It's like, fucking bring Darth Maul back. He's canonically alive yeah. because of Clone Wars. Yeah, that's right. Like, yeah. He's it, around. It would be fun. I would love to watch that. And instead of, it's not a big sort of epic sweeping Jedi saga. It's a very personal focused Western. And if the anthology films know what's good for them, that's what they'll be doing. They'll be doing mm. smaller, edgier, darker, more interesting Star Wars stories that don't necessarily have to be these big sweeping space operas. Because that's why we've got the main got series. The main series you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Give, us some, give us some smaller sections. Give us yeah. that gritty one-on-one the rivalries the or even you know the, the, there's some interesting stories that some people have pitched where it's sort of what about these characters who are left on these planets um what happens to them after you know five yeah. years of nothing happening where do they end up who's trying to survive where you know what oh, are these characters so doing? much and it's like i don't know it's like clone wars i think really started to do that in interesting ways that star wars rebels hasn't haven't done so much as a show mm-hmm. like as clone wars has these interesting little episodes that play with what are the implications of living in the Star Wars universe? Yeah. And they play with it in really interesting ways that don't necessarily have to be about the Jedi. Some of the best episodes focus on the clones. No, I absolutely. Mean, with what, Rex and his sort of sense of identity. Oh, and- it's amazing. This, that one, the one episode that, I, that really, really sold me on Clone Wars was that one where Rex gets wounded and he stays at a farm and it turns out the farmer at this farm is a deserting clone trooper. Oh, yeah, that's right. And you right. have Rex being like, you're a deserter, mm. I need to sell you out. Yeah. And the deserter's like, well, no. He goes, nobody gave me any choice. I was a slave. I escaped. I decided to have my own identity because who has the right to tell you what you what to do with your life? Yeah, I want to do what I want this. with my life. And yeah. he's like, Rex, you have that same choice. And it's great because you see Rex being like so conflicted by it. And it's a great, it's a great conflict with like great fucking implications for that universe. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it's, I think the anthology films would be really well served by doing similar interesting things yeah, and it's it's about those character pieces really. absolutely because it's, it's you know when you have the setting which is what the main films establish you get to grab these pieces of the world and go what are the implications of this thing that we yeah, built you know and definitely. i think that's definitely. yeah that's super fascinating to sort of take forward and hopefully i really yeah <laughs> star wars it's... moving forward will realize that and kind of well i'm already i'm just i'm i gotta say like on the note of star wars there's, there's part of me that's a bit worried that like disney's just based on The Force Awakens, just based mm-hmm. on Rebels, and look, I mean, I haven't seen, obviously I haven't seen Rogue One, but like what what I'm seeing of Rogue One beginning to sneak out, it just seems really, really geared towards nostalgia. Like yeah, Rogue One's they're like, bringing oh, all these old characters Vader, back. We're bringing yeah. in Ben Moff Tarkin, we're bringing in Boba Fett, we're setting up young Han Solo, because apparently Star Wars <sighs> is Marvel now. We don't, like, like, we don't just, need that. <laughs> like, we don't need that shit, man. Yeah. It's like, tell us an interesting high story set in the Star Wars universe. We don't need Darth Vader, we don't need Boba Fett. Just like... Give us new characters. Just be like, hey, here's a street kid from fucking Coruscant. Let's see what Fuck his life yeah. is. Give Tell us some his story. Give man. us some. Oh, it's just there's so much to bite into. Yeah, they, yeah. I mean, they will eventually, and you know, some of the novelizations do a good job of kind of oh, absolutely taking a bigger absolutely. chunk. Um, I mean, you know, one of the best examples is in the novelization of The Force Awakens. Um, you get that moment where you realize that those ashes that Kylo was dunking his helmet into—that's that's some some ashes from Vader. Vader, yeah. And that's yeah. a really small thing that. They don't actually touch on in the film, but small stuff like that. If they go, okay, well, how did this object come to be in the Death Star? Maybe just look at like some small yes. story. Or... I mean, that's that's. I mean, that's interesting. And like the yeah, the Force Awakens novelization was one of the most terribly written books I've read in my life. Look, it's but, not great. Oh, it's not great. <laughs> but like that said, it had some really really interesting stuff. Like mm. there was, I mean, there were certain things that it really fleshed out. The film should have, like the idea that. And one thing I think is so crucial that I can't believe the film got rid of it was the idea that Kylo Ren knew that because we were like, did, did Kylo Ren know that Vader 
like betrayed the emperor at the last minute. Yeah. And the novelization makes it clear that yes, he did, which totally explains his motivation for killing Han. Yes. Because he's like, okay, Vader failed because he couldn't kill a family member. I, I'm going to succeed. I got to do but what it, he couldn't. It doesn't. It doesn't make him stronger. It makes him weaker. Yes, which and is quite does, fascinating. That's so rich. That's like some fucking major <laughs> Shakespearean conflict going and it's on such there. Such a good turn. Like, oh, it's, it's awesome. Just it's just it's, it's brilliant stuff like that. That somehow the film. Like how do you how do you fuck that up? How do you take it's, something so good yeah, and not do it properly? It's fa- I mean I'm sure we'll see in the DVD extras when yeah, they come out that it'll be definitely. like oh well we we put that in there and then we ran out of time or it was you know it, it'll be something they small could have like just that. cut the raftars and they would have had so much <sighs> time get rid of that Star Trek stuff. scene yeah yeah I know right? like, it's fucking stupid. Um, so that being said, I wanted to kind of um, sort of touch on how you started into writing. So you mentioned before off microphone that um, that you sort of started on your about 13. So what was that process like for you? When oh you began? well, okay, I, I think the the way I. I probably best describe it is that like when I was a kid, I was always really, really obsessed with stories mm-hmm. and like, I loved books. I loved movies. I got right into that shit. And the one thing that like always upset me because I was, I was obsessively into, into a lot of different books and movies and mm-hmm. like, and I mean obsessively, like it was all I thought about all I kind of, oh, read, yeah. all yeah. I consumed all of that. And it always felt wrong to me that I could love a story so much but the characters didn't belong to me. Yeah. So it was like, you know, I, I remember reading like the John Mars and Tomorrow When the War Began series, and that was just my favorite thing. Or, um, you know, the Harry Potter books as well, uh, or yeah. Lemony Snicket, and just being so in love with these series. And, and, and when I was 13, in a fucked up way, uh, the Hannibal Lecter books too. Um, yeah, no, but, it has a place. You know, you know it's, 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 oh, yeah. look, that, that shaped me. Those books shaped me so much. <laughs> like, I remember like picking up Red Dragon when I was 13 and oh. just plowing through Red Dragon, Science Lambs, and Hannibal over a week and being like, holy fuck, and secretly watching the movies in the mornings while my parents were out at work and like, you know, it's like watching the door for them to come home because you know, oh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't anyway, have, it was, yeah. They clearly wouldn't approve because you were they far too young. would yeah. not have approved. But, but yeah, so basically I, th- I think I, I always sort of like wrote bits and pieces when I was a kid, like, you know, silly, little stories and stuff. But I remember like when I was 13, I sort of hit this point where I was like, okay, if I'm going to love stories this much, I have to tell my own yeah. because then the characters can be mine. Then I can do what I want with them. Then I can own them completely. Absolutely. And so the very first novel I wrote, oh, it was Fucking is the worst thing ever. I've still got it. Um, <laughs> it was a Hannibal Lecter slash Saw ripoff. Oh, nice. Called um, Slasher. Ooh, so, nice. Like, great name. Original Slasher. name. Yeah, really. Liam just gave, really. Our producers it, gave you the okay for that one. Oh, Brilliant. awesome, awesome. No, it, it was not derivative in the slightest. It was. Mm. Um, it was. Uh, and I'm not even going to go into it, but it was. It was fucking awful. But I don't know. Slasher was the one thing I do appreciate is that like I wrote Slasher when I was 13, like in my parents' office, just like smashing it out and. I finished it, like, I've, and I just remember, like, when I finished it, because I'd always had all these ideas growing up that yeah. I never seemed to be able to write. And then when I finished writing Slasher, I it was something like I could just write anything, yeah. Like any of those it, other ideas, it's like, quite had, weird, isn't once it? Once that was out of the way, once I'd like cleared out that piece of shit, and I'm not saying that anything I wrote after that was good because it wasn't. No, no, no. But then I, I just like I had all these other ideas, and so I wrote like all these like different fantasy horror short short stories and novellas and stuff. And then I think it was when I was about 15. I wrote this fucking awful teen angst. Like, it was basically Fight Club about teenagers. Oh, nice. It's about this, like, kid who, um, who, like, grows up in a small country town like me and, you know, hates everyone in the town and hates all the conformity yep. and hates all the bogans and everything. And then he, he goes away on holiday and he is like, oh, I can reshape my identity while I'm away. And that reshaped identity formulates as a split personality that is, like, this anarchist. It was really shit. Yeah. And I didn't realize that I was ripping off Fight Club until later. And I had seen Fight Club, so it was definitely in my head. And I was like, I wonder where I got this amazing idea from oh yeah fight club actually it's, um, it, it does happen to even the best of writers you get oh, you get yeah. you get into the start of a project and you'll go 
I've started rewriting, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. Shit. And you start to, and I've, you know? I've even had that recently. I was working on a novel the other day and I was like, fuck, this is really good. Then I was like, this is just the plot of His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. <laughs> I was like, this is just the exact same Ooh, plot. And I was yeah. like, fuck, okay, I have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, even then, like I wrote this and that was the first thing of mine that like I actually started showing to people and like actually getting some attention for. Like, So like, who was... um. When you had that finished, who was the what? What was your go to for showing? Who were you well, showing? First, to it start? was first. It was friends. Yeah, and that was the first time when before that, you know, you always had the friends who like read things out of obligation. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. I guess I'll read it and stuff like that. And also, I used to post a lot of stories on a website that I don't know if it still exists called fictioncentral.com. Mm-hmm. And basically, it was like it was a sub. I guess a sub website of one of those fanfiction.com websites yeah. and basically, but it was for a totally original fiction. And so I used to post all my stories on that and you'd like get a few comments in that. And yeah, the, this story about this angsty teenager, I gave to some friends. And that was the first time when people were like, Where, where's the fucking next chapter? Oh, where's okay. the fucking next yeah, chapter? Yeah, yeah. And it was the first time that like I put it on this website and it actually got a following. Like yeah. there were people who would come back for each new chapter, read every new chapter oh, and start okay. to pick up. And it was the first time I was like, I might actually not be bad at this. That's the first taste you had of that. Home. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, then it was like, I think it was a high school girlfriend's mum read them. And then she passed it on to a friend of hers who was a published author uh, okay. who then called me. And like, we spoke on the phone for like three hours where he just like gave me some advice, talked me through. It was like, look, you know, I think you've got a lot of talent. I think you're really good at this. I don't think this is there yet, mm. but send me anything you've got as it goes on. Yeah. And so basically that just led to, I just kept writing through into adulthood and just, yeah kept going from there and pretty much after that there was sort of no looking back it's a slippery and slope isn't exactly it? oh and it becomes an addiction and then honestly at a certain point you know my parents like oh so what are you gonna do if the writing thing doesn't work out and i was like well the fact is i'm not good at anything else so Actually, it's quite the funny, reality is it? i don't have a choice it's it's quite funny you know uh, one of the biggest questions that a lot of authors i tend to talk to have you know i'll, I'll say oh well what was the turning point when did you know it worked and most for most people it's when they're like 13 or 15 and it's, yeah, it's yeah. the first time that someone reads something and there's something really. There's a word for it that I can't think of, um, but it's it's this sense of intoxicating gratification where yeah, someone yeah. goes, "I like what you've done," and you go, "Well, that's this thing that I've written as a part of the identity I have at this time." So exactly. when you write, and, and it's, so it's, it's a someone, validation. It's a sense of validation, and it's you can't. It's it's this thing that people who aren't creatively minded or don't produce stuff, they can't really grasp what that's I like. I completely agree, and it's that. That's why I've I've said to people before, the thing about writing is that it is better than being drunk it's better than being high it's better than sex it's better than drugs it's better than everything like it is just the best feeling in the world is of having had like a hard day of writing having done like five thousand words knocked Mm. out five thousand words in a couple of hours and just been like holy fuck i am kicking ass and i would remember like coming to work even (laughs) you're like like, i'm the king of everything buzzing and like like with this like you know just like this ecstatic energy that would like see me through the whole night Mm. i just wanted to tell everyone about this thing i'd written that nobody knew what the fuck i was talking about and it's probably like oh i had this scene where the character did this and they're like what what, what do you want about yeah, that? And you're like, up? look, yeah, and you know, it's probably garbage because it's the first draft. Of course, but, but it it's doesn't that, matter. It's, yeah, it's, it's that addiction at the time. You don't, like any addiction, it's exciting for those who are in it. Exactly. Else, it's exactly. really boring. Oh, of course. Exactly. But, you know, if you end up eventually with something that is readable and something that people like, it's even, then, yeah, it's. Oh, look, it's, it's a gateway drug. It's, it's yeah. just, you're basically told that the thing that you've spent these hours wasting away is actually worthwhile. And it's, it's funny you bring up the thing about, like, about validation and everything because. It's weird because, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, you don't need other people's validation and everything. But to be a writer, you kind of do. And I only say that because, look, the fact is I would write whether people liked what I did or not. I would keep writing until I got to a point where people liked what I did. But the thing about it is I've always felt choosing writing as a career is inherently arrogant. Because basically 
what you're assuming is that people should pay money for things I have come up with in my head. And I believe that these ideas are good enough to warrant people handing over cash to consume them. Correct. And you have to have that belief. And so that's why, like, I mean, I, I never understand those writers who, like, who I say, like, I know other writers, you know, younger writers and stuff. And I've said to them, hey, like, do you want to send me some of your stuff? And they say, oh, no, no, it's not good. It's not good. And I was like, so why are you writing if you don't think what you're writing is good? Yeah. Like, you have to like what, even if you think it can be better, why are you writing if you don't like what you're writing? Like, look, I've, I've written stories that have, I, I thought were good at the time and I mm. finished them. And I was like, that did not work out how I thought it was. Yeah. But I still liked the story at the time. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written it. Like, why do you, like, don't, which to me says either you've got, unbelievable self-control to keep writing even though you believe what you're doing is shit because I wouldn't keep writing if I thought what I was writing was shit even mm. if it is shit and I just don't know it or alternatively you're just like spewing out false modesty in which case if you can't if you can't show your writing to people how are you ever going to get feedback how are you ever going to get criticism which is so important mm. and how is anybody how is the right person ever going to see your work no absolutely like, I think at the end of the day, like to be a good writer, you have to hold two beliefs in your mind at the same time that are contradictory. You have to know that what you're writing is complete garbage and also know that what you're writing is the best thing you could possibly produce. Are you produce. a Bruce Springsteen fan by any chance? Um, you're wearing a Bruce Springsteen shirt. I am wearing shirt. a Bruce Springsteen t-shirt, um, but he said that. Did he? He said at a concert recently, and I I, it really struck a chord with me because he said like his exact words were to become great. And obviously he's talking about music, but I think yeah. it can be applied to any art. Mm -hmm. He said to become great, you know, you ha it's the key is to hold two completely contradictory ideas yeah, in your head absolutely. at all times. You have to think that you can always be better and think you're the best. Yes. You have to take yourself as seriously as life itself and be able to laugh at yourself and take yeah. the piss out of yourself at every chance. He went through all these different things. And I think he's right. Like, No, he yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like it's just... If for anyone looking for something, so the, the people at home, if you want to research this a bit more, um, there's a thing called Allah, which is A-L-A-R, and it's sort of this belief, it's kind of that belief where you can, you're able to hold two conflicting things at once, and they, in doing so, it makes both more effective. Yeah. I think it's really important as an author. Well, it also keeps you, it keeps you grounded and it keeps you balanced, because like too much ego can send you, and like, look, ego, egos are really, really easy trap to fall into. The moment a few people tell you you're good at something, like, you know, it's it's that thing of so many people tell you you're good at something, the worst thing that could happen is that you start to believe it. Yes. And even though you do believe it on one note, I think I think that whole stay hungry thing is really important. Yeah. That whole sense of always striving to be better, always striving mm. to improve. Even if, and I think it is so important that you like what you do, I think it is key to always think, I can be better, I can get here, I can get higher, Absolutely. I can improve. Yeah. Um, I think it's so essential. Like, I think the moment you start being satisfied and start thinking, I'm the best, like... <laughs> That's the minute you lose your drive, really. Exactly, and then you'll come out with something totally shit. Like, and I, I know because I made that mistake. Mm. Um, a play of mine that I put on a couple of years ago. So so I, my first play that I... Because I, I started... Well, the bulk of my writing output is in independent theatre. Mm -hmm. And um, my first few plays were done by youth theatre companies out in the Yarra Valley. And my first independently produced play, Reunion which is about four high school friends who get together five years after school finishes and everything goes wrong. <laughs> yep. And the drunker they get, all their problems, all their issues, all yep. their dramas start to come out. Mm -hmm. And, like, I put that on in 2013 with, like, a group of friends from work and somehow, like, and it was that was, a first, that was another sort of, sort of turning point moment where I put this play on, not thinking it would be any good, not thinking anyone would come to see it, just being like, fuck it, I want to put on a play. Put on a play. I wrote yeah. it and then, like, you're getting... Rev good reviews from total strangers and like people are coming to see it and <laughs> people aren't get, your like, friends decent shows and you're like wait hang on what, what like people are actually laughing at this people are enjoying this people are and so that was kind of the first time i was like oh maybe i'm actually pretty good at the theater thing and then i went on i wrote a play called below babylon which was a sort of dystopian 
sci-fi drama. And I wrote mm. so we, I've got a little production company, Bitten by Productions, and um, the group of us, myself, uh, my friend Justin, Ash, and Finn, the four of us sort of like co-produce all these plays together. Mm. Yeah. And Below Babylon was this play that it was like a dystopian sci-fi drama about basically it's a Western set in a dystopian future Australia about a former enforcer for a like dangerous conglomerate drug cartel who has betrayed this cartel and is waiting in a bar for them to come and kill him. And oh, it's nice. all like the pressure cooker of he's in the bar. And yeah. at some point, his old best friend turned bitter enemy will find him. But it's all kind of him like getting caught up in the lives of the people in the bar and all yeah. this shit. And anyway, it was the kind of play that like a lot of people got really into. Um, we got a lot of money together. We did it as like a fairly big budget production. It did really well. And coming out of Below Babylon, it was one of those things where I was like, fuck, I can do anything. I can <laughs> fucking do anything. Yeah, yeah. And I'd had this idea about this play, um, that play called... I think it was called A Good German and it was um, basically uh, – I know it wasn't originally called A Good German. It did end up being called A Good German. It was originally about a Nazi in a concentration camp who falls in love with a Jewish girl. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea for a while. I thought, yeah, that's a good story. That'll be fun. And I wrote it. And the thing is, by this point, I believed I was good enough for that first draft to be fine. Oh, okay. I believed like, – I was like, nah, fuck it. It'll be fine. Ooh. It'll work. It'll be good. Oh. And it got yeah. put on and – <laughs> I wish that I wish to God it had failed financially. Mm-hmm. I wish to God people hadn't come and seen it. Uh, yeah. But critically, holy fuck, the most vitriolic review in history was written about that play. If you type <laughs> into Google my name followed by a good German, the stage whispers review, it is the it literally opens with the line a good German, the bad play. And you read Ooh. it and it is savage. It is like, the, think of the most vitriolic, angry review you've ever heard in your life. Yep. This was worse because me thinking my script was good enough while writing about the Holocaust seemed like the most arrogant thing in the world Yeah, when it wasn't there. And it seemed like, I, ha- I know I'd done my research. I know I'd worked on it, but like it, it, it didn't come across in the execution and yeah. I hadn't made things clear enough. And the fact of the matter is the worst reviews, the ones that hurt the most are the ones that you know are right. Of and course, reading this yeah. review, it was like, it stung. Like, I, like, I've had people say horrible things about my writing where it's like, yeah, but I also don't think you're right, so it doesn't really hurt. But in this case, yeah, it was like a knife to the heart because the guy was right. He'd said the right thing. He, he completely skewered everything that was wrong with it. Yeah, I mean, the, the review, I'm, I'm looking at it now, and, and um, mm. it is just brutal. You, you know, the, the opening line is a good gem, and the the bad play Let like me, if you want to pass that to me i can find the highlights yeah um like i actually i want to keep this yeah it's oh man it's because that's where he talks about me i think you, you know because uh, is the thing is like the minute it becomes a personal attack even though a lot of you writing there's a distance i think particularly a first draft it becomes about you because there's no distance between you and the work whereas, yeah whereas like if someone wrote a bad review about your book you're like oh well we've been working on it for like three and a half years editing and stuff it's me and my editor and the other people involved and like it's a blow to all of us but if it's something that raw yeah it's yeah. just coming for you and it's it's, it's, it's oh, the man. jugular it's, you know but see that's it like okay so yeah i mean looking at now so the the choice parts apart mm. from all the parts that tear the play itself to shreds <laughs> the part where it talks about me on um, this two paragraphs. oh yeah okay um, perhaps Gabriel Bergmoser figured he already knew all he needed to know about Nazi concentration camps or death camps, or that his bogus grey areas of morality, I'm quoting the program here, were so powerful and elemental that context and setting didn't matter. Given the subject matter, either decision displays irresponsibility. Yeah. And then there's a part at the end where he says, what is really surprising is that a good German is Mr. Bergmoser's sixth play since 2010. And again, according to the program, his work has been met with praise and success. Yeah. Is what is going on here then a mysterious anomaly or simply amateurism run rampant? Ah. Now what... Ooh. 
What annoyed me about that was the fact that I talk about praise and success. I talk about good reviews that I've had because that's in the program. It says, oh, you know, this play was met with good reviews. The magazine that wrote this review has given me some of my best reviews ever. Ah, that's this guy worse. did not do his fucking research before he said that. Worse. But yeah, if I ever write an autobiography, I'm going to call it Amateurism Run Rampant. Nice. Because that Beautiful. can sum up my entire career thus far and going forward. So you hit this point where you get this bad review. What's the period, what's the transitionary period like from that to where you write a script good enough to get this, this award and, and fly over to America? You stop, listening to, you stop listening to people who tell you you're amazing. You just yeah. you stop listening. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like the guys in my production company and like fucking bless them. They are, they, they work their asses off. They bring so much to the table. They've helped workshop scripts to the point of being some of the best stuff I've done. Yeah. But the fact is, I think when I showed that script to these guys, to, to my friends, at the production company, there was a lot of support for it. Yeah. And I feel like we'd gotten to a point where they sort of trusted me enough to be like, no, it's good. It's good. Yeah, they were too close to it. That's it. And the thing was, it's so easy to give work to people who you know are going to tell you it's good. Yeah. Because these are my best friends. And it's so easy to give work to them and Mm. be like, they're going to tell me it's amazing no matter what. Instead of giving it to the people who will be harsh and will be tough. You know, you want... you want to give it to someone who's going to say, hey, you know what? There are good bits, but here is what you did terribly. Because yeah, that's what is, you need. Exactly. And so, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I think I just, <laughs> I think my outlook just changed. I started, I I never again put on a play that I considered a first draft. Uh-huh. I sent plays, when I would write stuff, I would send it to a lot of people who I knew were harsh. Particularly at that point, I was in film school and I was surrounded by a lot of other writers who had a really discerning eye. Okay, and, so you you've know, got we, that We're option. all very honest with each other. Yeah. Um, like the group I got from film school, they, we're, we're like it's a great group because we are everybody's supportive, but everybody's also really straight with each other about problems. Yeah. So, and we're all also at a point where I don't think anybody feels like it's a personal attack when someone says, "Look, this is shit. This yeah. is shit." And so I think we all can take that because you can separate works and yeah, person. exactly. Yeah. And so you know, I'm, I've just been a lot more discerning about who I send scripts to. I've been a lot more. I also know that like one thing, and this isn't me. This this is going to sound like an excuse for good German. It's not. <laughs> yeah. But one thing is that. I knew that the script wasn't ready, yep. but I listened to people who told me it was. Uh, and okay. that's my fault more than anything else because yep. that that speaks to my own arrogance that I was like, even though my gut feeling is this is not ready, in my head I was like, nah, nah, it'll be fine. Like it'll everyone be fine. has said it'll be fine. Everyone said it, it'll be good. Yeah. I'm right. Like, And that's a weird headspace to be in as well because that means yeah. that whatever you're producing creatively, there's you've let the the praise and 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 people saying that it's good you've let that override your natural instinct as a writer to be like well it might be good but it's not the best it could be yeah exactly um and so yeah i've definitely changed i've definitely like in terms of how i approach writing i like i do a lot of redrafting a lot of rewriting before things go on um windmills a script that won the sir peter usnov award that was rewritten so many times Mm. like because that was my final project for film school yeah and so you know at vca uh, victorian college of the arts um every week we had meetings with a tutor who would like read the script every week and yeah. every week we were expected to hand in another draft. Oh, okay. So it was huge rewrite yeah, after huge rewrite that. after huge rewrite to the point where what I handed in could not have been any better. Yes. Like it was so like, and I know cause I look at it and it's like, fuck, it is so tight because like those, those tutors again, like they're very honest. Yeah. Their job, their job, their is job to is just to tell you, you this doesn't work. Correct. Yeah. And you have to be able to hear that. You, it's so crucial that you're able to hear that. And that's why you pay editors is because they are exactly. they have distance exactly. from it. Um, yeah, so the award that you won, 
Um, can you talk us through sort of what the award is for and, and how you came into that? You know, did, did you submit it yourself? Um, yeah. What was the so process for that? The, it's called the so Peter Usinov, um Television Script Writing Award. And basically, it's an award that is run by the Academy in America, as in yeah. Oscars, Emmys, those guys. Yes. Um, which, the, the guys in the big chairs. Yeah, those guys. It's um, <laughs> It still feels weird coming out of my mouth. But mm. basically, what, um, what it is, it's an award that's been run since the... Uh, 96 maybe i think was the or 98 was the first one but basically they um the thing behind the award is that it is to encourage upcoming writers in television and basically the only criteria is that you have to be under 30 yep and you have to be from outside america oh wow okay anyone else around the world can enter this competition okay that's Um, pretty cool so basically the winner gets uh Two and a half thousand dollars and gets flown to the international Emmys in America. Yes. And you know, you're there for the festival, you're there for all of that. It's huge. Yeah, it's a big it's Um, a big deal. So, you know, basically the award closed the day before um the day before my final was due for VCA, which was yeah, the final windmill script. And, you know, as when you're a writer, you enter a lot of those competitions as they come up and you see them. So I entered it myself, I put it in because I was like, Yeah, fuck it. Um, why not? What have I got to lose? Yeah. And like I remember it's really funny because the day, like the day before, like, yeah, it, there was one night I was out for drinks with these guys from uni and I was on the train home with one of my friends and we were talking about how the fact that like we'd finished film school and now we just kind of felt like we just didn't know what the next step was. Like we didn't know how to move forward. We didn't know how to advance, or how to get where we wanted to go. Yeah. And then we were just kind of, I got home and I was kind of feeling really dejected and I woke up the next morning with this email saying I'd been shortlisted for this award. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, fuck like i mean and i was happy with that i was like man that's that's validation enough like the fact that you get shortlisted for this international like that's prestigious crazy, fucking yeah, award like know. shortlisted is fine mm. and then for the next few weeks i was like oh you know so i i i didn't expect to win but i, I sort of like looked up the um i looked up the past winners and when they'd been announced mm-hmm. and so i knew it was going to be on the 18th of september or, or around then around i would find out mm-hmm. And I kind of got closer and closer, and everyone's saying, you know, oh, don't get your hopes up. And I wasn't, I was saying, oh, no, my, I haven't got my hopes up. I'm not going to. Oh, you got to play it down in your head, you know, yeah. Then I kind of had this weird moment, and I was like, hang on. If I get my hopes up, yeah. and I really am like, fuck, I hope I win, and then yeah. I don't win, yeah, I'll be disappointed for an hour, and then I'll move on to the next thing. Yeah. Whereas if I don't get my hopes up, the excitement and anticipation and hope I feel now, I only get to feel once. I yes. only get to feel this now in the build up to it. Yep. So fuck it, I'm getting my hopes up. There you I'm go, you go on tilt. Yeah. I really, really hope I'm going to Absolutely. Win. Yep. And yeah, I just remember this by like one morning, I was going to get up for work and I picked up my phone and I checked my phone to see if I'd had that email, expecting that, you know, thanks, but no thanks. You, you, you know, get, the, the, you get the, very used to these rejections. As a writer, you get used to it. Yeah, yep. it's, it's always the same template. It's always like, thank you for su- your submission. The quality across the board was very high, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. but you know, that, that yeah, shit. We all know um, that email. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that old chestnut. Yeah. Oh, I got one of those the other day, actually. Oh, nice. Um, it's always good. Yeah. Um, keeps you it's, humble. It's refreshing. But, yeah, no, nah, it's good. Shake, you know, shakes it up. But but then, yeah, so I was, I was ready for that. And I saw I hadn't got an email. And I put my phone down. And as I put my phone down, it started to ring. Oh. And I picked <laughs> it up. And I saw the New York number. Oh, boy. And I just remember being like, <laughs> And I answered the phone. And the, the poor woman on the phone, like, it's like I momentarily forgot to speak English. Oh, yeah. So she answered the phone. She's like, oh, hello. Just letting you know this is, uh, this is such and such calling from New York. Just letting you know that uh, you've won the Sir Peter Usinov Award. And I was like. <laughs> I just I couldn't speak. I mean, I'm punching the air like furious and mm, like, fuck, mm. yes. And then like for the next month after that, I was waiting for the email saying they'd got it wrong. Like, I, was, uh, yeah, I yeah. was waiting. The for other shooter dropped. And it was like, yeah, I'm not right. gonna believe it until I'm on the plane. Then I was on the plane. I was like, I'm not gonna believe it until I get there. And then it was like, and I, then I was like holding the award. And I was like, I got this happened. Yes, this is real. Like here I am at this like 
And then, you know, Broadway actors perform your yeah, the, script the, in front of an audience. What, what was it like, that staged, um, oh, that staging I, of that? I, I, there was a moment when, because yeah, it was, because the, the, it's the international Emmys, it's not the primetime Emmys. Yep. So the international Emmys are for shows outside America. Yes. So there's a lot of non-English language speaking shows, a lot of that kind of stuff, and mm-hmm. a lot of really interesting writers, directors from around the world, but it's not yep. as big an event. It's still huge. Like, you know, it's the ballroom at the Hilton booked out, massive gala. <laughs> it's massive, yeah, shit. yeah. But- yeah, so before that, there's a four-day conference. And, you know, you're there and there's a lot of um, lot of sort of networking, a lot of um, people sort of doing panels. And one of the panels is the live script reading. So you yeah. go in there and it's Broadway actors basically performing your script in front of an audience. And, they, they you know, it's, it's a stage reading. So they get up and they sort of act it out and they move around and everything. And I'm watching it. It was like, it was fucking mental these are like <laughs> professional paid actors doing it mm. and it kind of finishes and then after immediate and i remember like immediately after reading there was a cocktail party hosted by hbo yeah that I, I was going to and i was like but I, I was really broke like i had no money <laughs> and i was like and obviously like, i didn't have to pay any money there, but i was like i need to eat something before i start drinking in front of important producers and people yeah. from hbo mm-hmm. so I was like, the only thing I can afford is Maccas. Nice. So like, I've just been to this script reading. I've just had this Q&A where like, people are grilling me about the story. I spoiled the whole fucking TV show idea for them. I was like, this is going to happen in episode four. This is going to happen in episode five and all of that. <laughs> and then like, you know, that, that happened. And I, I was like, okay, fuck the cocktail party's about to start. I need to get something to eat. So I run out of the hotel, having just seen my script read, having, having just had a Q&A in front of an audience, mm. run down to Times Square, go into Maccas at Times Square, about <laughs> to go to a cocktail party hosted by HBO. I'm standing in line at Maccas about to get my six nugget meal. And I turn around, I, look, I see a mirror, and there's me, like, in my swanky suit, about to get Maccas because it's all I can afford, yeah. before I go to a cocktail party by HBO, having just come from a script reading <laughs> after being flown to America, and I just had the biggest grin on my face. I was like, holy fuck, this is the best day of my life. Yeah. Like, this is the best day of my life. It's How the moment. You, this yeah. is it. Like, holy fuck, this is an actual thing that has happened. Yeah. And it's like after, you know, you and anybody who writes knows this, like you just you do so much for so long and just getting that little bit of valid and not even a little bit, but like getting that validation, like getting to hold that award and being yeah. like, holy fuck, somebody <laughs> in this area has told me I'm good. Mm. And again, any opinion is just someone's opinion, but holy fuck, getting an opinion from something like that. Absolutely. Just, oh, it's it was unbelievable. It was just the most amazing thing. You know, I, uh, a lot of writers that I tend to speak to, they'll, they'll say things like, "Oh, well, that moment. Um, you know, you spend your whole life as a writer, basically treading water, more or yeah. less. And that's the moment where someone just offers you a hand and you sit on a life raft for a few minutes. Yeah, and yeah. it's that relief of being like, oh my god. It's like it's it's oh all right. I'm actually doing the right thing. And then it's- after a while, it wears off and you're back treading water, but you know that that life raft is there potentially in the future. And that's it. And like particularly because you just you. Things, I mean, I don't know. Like, and I remember shortly before I won the Usenov, I was at a point where I started to think, okay, like, I'd got another few rejection letters for another couple of novels and plays and stuff that I'd put into various things. And it gets to a point where you kind of look at it and you start to think, okay, like, I know everyone's like, oh, you know, you're still young and you're getting better and it's all yeah, about yeah. getting better. But at a certain point, you've been writing since you're 13 and you've been trying to get novels and stuff published since you were 18. And you're sort of sitting there thinking, well, if it's not going to happen now, what more do I need to do? How much better do I need to be before something happens or before somebody gives you that hand and pulls you out of the water? (laughs) Absolutely. But again, like I said before, it's such an arrogant thought because you're sitting there thinking, oh, I work so hard. But it's like, yeah, but it's not like you're working so hard at a job where you're doing something for someone. You're working so hard at a job where you're the only person who really believes that what you're doing is worthwhile. It's inherently very selfish. any obligation to think that. Like nobody on the planet has... And I I see... um, 
other, you know, independent theater people on Facebook who put up all this shit being like, oh, you know, come and support us. You know, nobody's coming to see the play tonight. Come and support us. All of this. We, we can, and uh, my favorite one is we can only do what we do when you support us. And I was like, nobody's asking you to do what you do. It's yeah, not going to be, a if people aren't coming to see you, you're not going to be a great loss to the theater world by not doing what you do. And that's, that's the honest to God truth. Like, absolutely. You should be like thanking that if, if you're performing to two people one night, then fucking perform your best absolutely. because those two people have paid money and come to see you, which is more than you can ever expect of anybody when you're in the arts. Fucking appreciate it. Absolutely. Like I, I really, you know, it's just, it's, so that's it. That, that, that's why I think it's so hard because it's such a, it's such a shit thing to whine and complain about. Where it's like, oh, I'm not doing well this field that I've chosen for myself. And like, you know, nobody made me do this. I chose to do this. And it's like, yep. it's, but it that doesn't undersell like how powerful that gratification is when it does come. Absolutely. Like I can't, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so changing gears for a minute. Um, you've got Boone Shepard coming up. You mentioned, you touched on that before. Yeah. Um, and so you put out the prequel, which is Boone Shepard and the Californian Catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a sort of 30-ish page prequel. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was the... So So you've... Which came first? Was it... So you've written five of these novels, correct? Yeah. Um, when did the prequel come about? What was the... Well, I actually wrote the prequel in America. Oh, okay. So it's quite recent, yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, so yeah, Boone Shepard... Um, there's actually... There's five books, but as of yet, only four are sort of committed to be published. Yeah. Um, because the first book, The Broken Record wasn't i think it's good but the you'll see you'll see when they sort of come out the other four books have a very clear arc over those four books and a very clear story with yep. a beginning middle and an end the broken record is like a standalone adventure oh, okay and what the publisher sort of said was that in terms of a first book in a series broken record isn't that strong it's not a book that's going to make you be like holy fuck this is something i need to see the next installment of yep. or something i need to pick up and like churn through you know yeah yeah burn through to the so next. basically broken record kind of got cut off and so you know it was the second book which at the time was called uh darkening ventures which is now just called boone shepherd as the first in the series because luckily there was nothing in broken record that was essential um yeah. all the character development all the backstory all the stuff you need to know happens in the second book so that's now the first book yeah um but yeah so i i wrote the five books a couple of years ago just back to back like a sort of year and a half long writing session yeah and yeah, so it's, um, now that's kind of gone on to be published. And when I was in America, I just wasn't doing that much writing when I was over there, but I was in LA and I kind of had a night off cause I had a lot of meetings and stuff in LA and I sort of had a night off where I was mm. like, fuck, I'm just going to sit in a bar, have a beer and do some writing. Yep. And I've been like, what the fuck am I going to write? And I was like, fuck, I just want to actually hang out with Boone Shepard again. Like I, yeah, a character it- I just haven't seen for a year. I just want to like, I just want to write a story with him. Yep. And I was like, fuck, I'm going to write a C- I'm going to write a prequel where he's in LA and he's on an adventure because I'm in LA and I'm kind of feeling it right now. And so I just wrote that in one night. Mm. Um, I just sat down in a bar, had a few beers and just wrote that story from top to bottom. Mm. And it was just really, really fun to write. And I sent it to my publisher. I was like, yeah, what do you think of this? And she was like, well, let's release it as a prequel. Yeah. And so it's like been released online and it's going to get like, it's going to be like a little handout in bookstores. Oh yeah. It's like a little bound handout in bookstores, probably like in a month before the novel comes out, which will Get, be in April. Pick some interest. And it'll be like just a thing like, so, you know, like kids can pick it up, have a flick through, read it. And at the back, there'll be a sort of publication date and everything. For yeah, the, yeah, all the good stuff. For yeah. the novel itself. Yeah. Effectively an advertisement. It's, uh, you yeah. know, we, we talk about those things as being, um, they're promises that the author is making of what's to come. Absolutely. And know? it's, look, it's the same kind of thing as, I mean, I, if I'm a fan of something, I love getting as much content as I can. Yeah. And a lot of books coming out have sample chapters released for publicity. I, I thought, and, my publisher kind of agrees that like the 
the fun, th- the the better thing to do is actually like give you an extra story, give you a bonus story, yeah, a little give bit you on a the side, a little bit of a prequel that will yeah. like set it up and let you. And there's also like the other thing is like the other option is that um the broken record, the first installment, is actually being published in installments by Phantasmagoria, an online magazine that I mm-hmm. used to write for, and so broken records online as well. So it's like there is prequel content out there to sort of introduce if, if you someone to the wants world to seek it out. If you, you want, know? it's there. You know, absolutely. Um. So yeah, it's um. So that's been a really really exciting process as well. Mm. Like California catastrophe, catastrophe was just a fucking ball to write from start to finish. Yeah, I mean it, it. It reads. There's something about the life in it that reads like you really enjoyed writing it. No, thank um, yeah, I did. You, yeah, you, you can tell. Like there's, uh, and you know, we talk about this a lot um, when when you talk about prose, but when something has life in it, it just like you can tell that whoever was writing it was in it at the moment. Yeah, and there's yeah. stuff we can tell like oh, you know, maybe it's like the fourth or fifth in a series and it's lagging a bit, but there's just this punch to it. Um, cool. It's quite unusual. So yeah, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I kind of wanted to, to uh, the particular opening that I enjoy, which is where he muses about Sunset Boulevard and yeah. where that name comes from. That was one of those moments where I was like, I'd never even thought about it. Like that's it's, quite like, where did that thought come from? Was that just, oh, that's dude, a moment? It was honestly as simple as like, Boone Shepard's one of those characters where he's, you know, he's this adventuring, crusading, investigative journalist. He travels around, he solves crimes and mysteries and rights wrongs and travels around his motorbike and gets into scrapes. But he's one of those characters who's like, He's a little bit eccentric and he's a little bit acerbic mm. and he's a little bit like he just gets caught up on weird things. Yeah. And just like a little bit like he often just doesn't really want to be where he is. And yeah, yeah. It just kind of – I was like, how do I start this story? Like how do I open it? And I just thought it would kind of be funny if like – because what Boone Shepard would do is, yeah, he'd ride into Los Angeles on what he thinks is this – of course, it turns out in the story that it's not. He thinks he's on like this epic important quest and it turns mm. out it's actually not. He's just there on false information and his own arrogance. Yeah. But – He's writing into it. I was like, what, what's he going to be thinking about? It's like, well, he's never been to America. He's, and there's a reason for that. Like, he's never seen this part of the world before. Yeah. And so I kind of thought for a character like Boone Shepard, who is from a very different world, coming into the crazy world of Los Angeles, he's just going to question things that we don't take for, that we take for granted. Yeah, that we've assumed like, things we've like seen Sunset it so Boulevard much. that are famous streets that we know about and we've grown up thinking, oh, yeah, Sunset Boulevard is an iconic, famous street. Mm-hmm. Boone Shepard's going to write in and be like, this is a famous street. Why the, why the hell is it called Sunset Boulevard? Like, yeah, like and it's why? Quite, like, it's, it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. It's this weird moment where you go, shit, he's kind of got a point. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. It's, quite, it's quite fascinating in that way. I think it, I think that is your humor bleeding through in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, thanks, you know, man. It's, it's that quite, um, not, you know, disrespectful or anything, but it's kind of that, like, um, slightly offbeat. You're like, well, what the fuck is this thing that we all know so well? Like, why yeah, is that yeah. a thing? And I think that that kind of, that's where Boone finds his identity. Cause he's kind of this weird Indiana Jones, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Um, and he seems like he's quite fun to write. And- oh, he's a ball. He's like, he's just, cause he's just one of those characters who just, it, it, it he comes so easily to me. And hmm. I think like, cause I, I wrote the very first version of Boone Shepard when I was actually near 11. And it was just a story that I wrote that based on a dream, actually, of all things, like this dream where I was a journalist traveling around solving mysteries. Mm. And I woke up and I was like, fuck, that's a great idea for a story. Yeah, that's a a story. Yeah, yeah. And so I just, I wrote it and I wrote a few of them. But like, like I mentioned before, the teenage angst story that like I had friends who really liked, I was like to friends, hey, read Boone Shepard. And they were like, no, we don't like it. And I was like, all right. So I kind of forgot about it. Mm. And um, eventually kind of picked it up again uh, a few years ago and like rewrote the whole thing again from the start. But it was just a story that never went away. But I think because I've sort of lived with the character in my head for so long, he sort of just becomes quite easy to write. Yeah, I know and, what you mean. Yeah, he sort of finds characters like that. Yeah. What you get, you get to know them. And, and he's that's it. And like I know, I know Boone back to front, and it's, he's a really like he's he's just one of those characters where he's yeah he is an adventurer and he's a hero. Like he's totally a hero. Like you know he, he saves a day all the time and everything, but 
he's got so many flaws that like he he never plans ahead. He's impulsive. Yeah. He's just like, I'm going to do this. It's like, well, what's the plan? He's like, there, there isn't a plan. I'm just going to do this. Yeah, and, then what he, and then he inevitably screws it up exactly. every single time. And he's mm. a little bit bumbling, but not bumbling in that kind of like, oh, I'm so goofy sort of way, just bumbling in that like he just screws things up. And yeah. that just makes him grumpier and more determined yeah. to, and snarkier. And suddenly and you find just... yourself being like, well, I'm kind of on his side because... That yeah. was a fuck up that he couldn't see coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's quite funny and how he kicks we sort himself of... for it all the time. He's just kind of like, you know, he's like, yeah, he's he's not stupid. Mm. He just doesn't really think ahead. Yeah, because he has, and you he... know, he has these moments of, particularly in the prequel, you know, he he's able to infiltrate this building quite intelligently. But once he gets in there, he's like, yeah, I didn't really think about what I was going to do when I got here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's exactly. like, shit, now I'm in this library. Like, it's quite, um, something about that sort of, it has its roots in realism, but it's this weird, like, fun romp. Well, you that's know. it. And I mean, like so often, like, and I know this happens to me, like obviously not in, like in Bryn Shepard's case of using a harpoon from the Hollywood sign to break into a director's house to steal a book. You I've, haven't done that I've, personally. Funnily enough, no. But, um, <laughs> not in your but, free time. <laughs> but I think we all have situations where it's like, you know, we, we overthink situations and we overplan situations and we are certain that we have this like really elaborate take on something, but we'll miss something so obvious. Super obvious like we'll yeah. miss something blatantly obvious, even though like the best laid plans, we mm-hmm. make them and then we'll just miss something that should have been staring us in the face from day one. Yeah, Cause we've been looking or we've totally misinterpreted it. the situation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that's very much like a standard Boone Shepherd, like somebody who read the book recently said that she really liked it because Boone Shepherd was, not a straight-laced hero. I mean, he is. He, he means well. He tries to do the right thing. Yeah. But he's also very human and very flawed, and he screws up all the time. Yeah, he's got this thoughtless and, streak in him. Exactly. Yeah, he yeah. is He is reckless. And, and then he's got his his character who's like his... Initially, his nemesis then becomes his offsider, and then eventually his best friend, Promethea Peters, mm. who's this snarky photographer who early on in the series always turns up at the worst possible times and tries to, cause she's this photographer who believes that Boone Shepard's a fraud because he always gets the best stories. Mm. And so she's always trying to trip him up or steal ah. his stories or something. Yeah. And we see that and in the prequel where she yeah, sort of yeah, busts into the library and she's up. like, what's your story? And he's like, oh, I don't <laughs> have like, time for this shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'll team up with you. And then he betrays her. And, and like, yeah, in the broken record, there was this whole thing where, she again she saves his life from a perilous situation yeah and then she's like oh what's the story and he doesn't know this is when they first meet and he's like oh i'll let you in on the story and then of course she turns around and backstabs ah. him and then it turns out that he's actually secretly backstabbed her already there you and go. So sent her to the wrong thing and it's and so their relationship's really fun because prometheus is another character who ultimately means well but is selfish and is loud mouthed mm. and is arrogant and is snarky and the fun of the series is showing Boone and Promethea both grow together. Yeah. Where they both become more selfless. They both become more heroic. And they learn to appreciate each other. They yeah. go from being like, we fucking hate each other. Your shit, no, your shit. Except <laughs> they don't swear because it's a kid's novel. Yeah. But ultimately it sort of becomes about their friendship and relationship sort of developing in like, yeah. in what was a really, like interestingly enough, a really natural way because I didn't sort of, ex- basically without sort of spoiling things, I didn't plan on their relationship going the way it did mm. but there were just moments in the writing it's like oh hang on this is what's happening Wait, you go and... you go this is what we expect to happen but what would someone really do you know? yeah where's yeah. that turning but point? I, no, I don't even think it was that thought out like it was just moments where i was i'd be writing a scene expecting it to go one way or like planning for it to go one way and then suddenly i just had this overpowering feeling i'm being like oh wait no hang on that's not how it goes and then you follow that down the rabbit hole uh, and yeah. it takes you to new and really unexpected places. And I think that's absolutely how these, you know, that's how these creations really find their legs. So when you first, so you're saying that when you first started, you sort of had this dream about this character. So that's just sort of where it really started is with that, 
you know, a lot of series and a lot of creative pieces start with the idea of a character. So, you know, in Harry Potter's case, JK had this idea of this boy with this Thunderbolt scar who was, this power was thrust upon him. Yeah, yeah. You know, was that sort of, was there a moment where you were like, okay, this is what Boone Shepard looks like. This is what he does for a living. And it just kind of happened from there. Sort of, no, uh, yes and no. I think he... He didn't, because J.K. Rowling, I think, said that Harry, like, walked into a head fully formed. I don't think Boone did that so much. I think initially Boone was, like, he was a character, because I'd been writing these teen angst stories at the time, Mm. and I wanted a character who was totally different to that. And in the the dream, basically, the specific dream was, have you guys ever heard of the Paul is dead Beatles conspiracy? It's a conspiracy that Paul McCartney... Producer's nodding, yep. Yeah, it's um, it's great. It's, it's actually one of those amazing things. You can spend an afternoon on Wikipedia, yeah. The idea is that they replaced Paul McCartney with a <laughs> double because he died in a car accident in 1966. Mm-hmm. And the Paul McCartney who has lived ever since then is not actually Paul McCartney. Oh, okay. And there's, like, there are huge conspiracy theory websites dedicated to this, full of, like... And that's the idea, because the dream was that I was a journalist investigating the Paul is Dead conspiracy oh, okay. on a motorbike traveling around the country. Yep. And that's the plot of The Broken Record, the first one. Oh, is okay. that it's not actually Paul is Dead, it's a band called The Bugs, I say in inverted <laughs> commas. And it's, you know, yeah. Moon Shepard investigating this like mysterious band that is obviously meant to be The Beatles. Yeah. And that's kind of where it came from. But initially I was like, okay, this story. And at the time I was really into like... It was a weird mismatch of influences. I was really into Jack Kerouac on the road. I was really into Hunter S. Thompson, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yep. I was really into um, Oscar Wilde, like Dorian Gray, oh, yep. Points Being Earnest, stuff like yep. that. And I was also working at a local newspaper. Oh, so I thought, okay. okay, I really would love the main character to be a journalist because I was doing a lot of that at the time. And I thought, yep. okay, he's a journalist. And I was like, okay, but I don't want him to be a dark, angsty character. I want to be a character who actually like is a bit quirky and doesn't take himself yep. too seriously and is a little bit of fun. And I wanted the world to be a bit quirky. So the world that Boone Shepard takes place in it's our world, but not. It's a bit heightened. It's, it's got a some, little bit ridiculous. The, the dial's on 11, you know. Exactly. Like, yeah. everything is just a bit off. You know, P- uh, Peter's drives a gyrocopter. Yeah, Prometheus Peters drives so a gyrocopter. And, and he rides normal. his motorbike that's on normal. a rope. Yeah. yeah, and, like, Boone Shepard's motorbike is full of gadgets. that like, And that's yeah. just normal. That's just... And, like, that's you know, the there's other things that, like, you know, journalists and photographers are at war. Um, there's a running joke, which I actually have a really, really elaborate explanation for. Oh, okay. that, like, And you'll see this when, in the book, mm. manatees keep turning up. Like, there's always, like, all the artwork in houses are just manatees. Okay. Or, like, in, like, expensive people's houses, there are just busts of manatees. Yeah. Or, like, just manatees keep turning. And there's a reason. There's actually a really oh, elaborate okay. reason for it. At first, it was a running joke. But basically, I just want the world to be a little bit absurd. I want it to just be fun and, like, just a bit of a change of pace where you can just read it. Like, the novel's one of those things you can read in two days, knock over. It's mm. fast-paced. There's no filler. It just burns through plot. Mm. And I want it to be funny and engaging and quirky and just one of those things that's just a fun kind of fun. Yeah, and, and you, you remember it as being like, oh, well, that was a really fun experience that i would love to go back as it goes on it gets a bit deeper but and that's kind of i guess who boone had to be and then like originally i think i saw him as being kind of in his 30s and then he got a bit younger and so i wanted someone who was had like a little bit of that oscar wilde wit but a little bit of that like hunter s thompson jack kerouac kind of you know bit of he's because he's a nomad he travels around and he just sleeps under the stars or in a tent because he's got Mm -hmm. a tent in the back of his motorbike in one of its many compartments or like (laughs) just stays in different places and start and like you know poses as different as different people in different Mm. adventures like the broken record starts with him posing as a librarian in a small country town Mm -hmm. and all this stuff like depending on what his adventures are and because i just love that whole like kerouac idea of just like getting out there and wandering around and seeing just seeing what happens particular aim just seeing what happens and so i guess it was a a mix match of like a bunch of really weird influences kind of all yeah, together. Yeah, you, you put all the things that you like in a box and you shake it up. That's, and, see and what that's happens. how I've always felt about Boone Shepard. Like the, the fun of these stories is that like 
unlike other things I write that have a really particular thing, Boonchep is one of those things where you can throw anything at the wall and it will stick. Yeah. The world is so ridiculous. So like in the third book, for example, they meet Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, and awesome. they get involved in a murder conspiracy with Alfred, <laughs> and the Boone and Prometheus have to team up with Alfred Hitchcock to solve a crime. Mm. Um, the first book, Oscar Wilde's in it, Bram Stoker's in it, like all these characters like turn yeah. up in various roles because the time travel element that comes into it. Okay. Um, the second book, Boone has like an adventure with Janis Joplin. Oh, wow, um, okay. There's, like, there's all kinds of stuff like that, you know, just because it's set in the 60s and you can kind of do what you want. And it's, yeah, you've got breathing and, room there. And I, I like to kind of like, like the first book, I kind of want to be like, I, I kind of like tried to model all the books up something I really enjoyed. So the first book is meant to be like a sort of gothic 1800s sort of adventure horror novel. The mm-hmm. second book's meant to be like a Western, like a rollicking American Western. Oh, like yeah. if, the, if it was a movie, the whole soundtrack would be Creedence Clearwater Revival. <laughs> it's just like, you know, traveling across the country, like, you know, fighting cowboys and just having a great time. <laughs> and it ends on a flying casino over Las Vegas. It's a ball. Amazing. And then like the third book is meant to be like an Alfred Hitchcock murder mystery mm-hmm. so all the characters are named after characters from hitchcock movies oh, or from awesome. hannibal lecter so like i think one of the characters is like um like freddie crawford or something like oh, that so amazing. all the characters names are mashups. Yeah. So it's just like I, I just i really enjoy like just filling it with easter eggs of just things i like so again like what you said like just throw mm. everything i like in a box shake it up and hope for the best yeah and i mean the process yeah. you know i think particularly as a reader you can sense you can sense when that works and when it doesn't and i think having just read the prequels instead of touched on some of the other content i think one of the things that's really interesting about the style that you employ is that, as you said before, it's mostly plot. You don't linger on the exposition. Yeah, you yeah. let it kind of speak for itself. You know, there's a, the moment where uh, you know Pete, they're on the roof at the end, and he ramps his bike off the roof and onto the hill or whatever, and then she gets in her gyrocopter. That was one of those moments where I was like, oh well, that makes sense because that's the world that they're in. Yeah, there's no point where you're like, well. She's got a gyrocopter, and the reason she has a gyrocopter is blah, 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 yeah, no, she's got a gyrocopter. She just has one. Of course she does. Yeah, because like, why wouldn't she? Yeah, exactly. Like, you get, and then there's a secret passage in the library. Yeah. Because why wouldn't there be? You exactly, know? and that's, that's, that's kind of like my whole logic with the whole thing. It's just like, well, fuck it, why not? Like, just, why not? And it's, um, and yeah, that's like, I, I've always found, like, particularly, like, when I'm writing comedies, and it's sort of the same principle when I'm writing Boone Shepard, if something makes me laugh mm. or makes me kind of be like, that's audacious and ridiculous and silly, and I can't believe I'm doing it, but fuck it, I'm going to do it. Because, like, so much of what I write tends to be, like, darker sort of more crime thriller stuff. And so getting to play in a playground as ludicrous as this has been a total change of pace. Mm. Um, And it's great. Like, I I love it. It's so much fun. Yeah, I mean, I've really enjoyed reading the prequels, and I'm sure when the book comes out that we'll we'll have to revisit the conversation so we can talk about it in some more depth. Yeah, absolutely. um, So when when is Boone Shepard coming out? What's the the release date? April. April. Um, So at the moment, some advanced copies have kind of gone out to reviewers and distributors and stuff like that. Um, But it comes out officially in April. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe the the idea at this point, and I don't want to speak too soon, but I mean... Because obviously, so much depends on like if it does well, things like that. It should be. Yeah. It should be at this point. Um, look, I'm not too sure because a lot of the stuff is kind of above my pay grade. But um, <laughs> yeah. at this point, it's um, it should be like in all your major bookstores, your Dimmicks, your readings, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, basically, come out in April. Um, the idea is that the second book will come out in September or November, mm-hmm. and then the third and the fourth the year after that. Okay. Um, yep. But I mean, again, like you know, and and I've got I've got like other ideas for further stories. I've got like a whole mapped out sequel story about his daughter set 20 years later oh, i've awesome. got like i've got the whole world like yeah. mapped out you've got it you've got it ready like, to go so yeah. i mean basically if it fails it's gonna be shit because a lot of that work <laughs> will be for nothing but like fuck it anyway it was fun to write so yeah well, i mean that's what matters at the no end of the day off my nose. yeah no absolutely um so is there anything else that you want to spruik while you're here anything else you're involved in currently that's worth mentioning 
Oh, um, at the moment, well, I've got um, I've got a new play coming up. Um, oh, of course, uh, yeah, Lucas, Lucas Conundrum. Yeah, um, which was another really fun thing. Um, so yeah, Lucas Conundrum opens in February at Club Voltaire in Melbourne on mm-hmm. February the sixteenth, I think. That'll be and, a few days before this comes out. So oh, that's wicked! Perfect. I was going to ask. Um, yeah, yeah, when this lines up. Probably but, um, perfect. Lucas Conundrum's like it's about basically. It's funny, you know that thing that happened last year where a six Star Wars fan asked to see the film early mm-hmm. and J.J. Abrams let him? Yep. I actually wrote it before that happened, but it's oh, a very similar concept. Okay. It's about a d- director in Hollywood who in the 80s had a massive fantasy franchise to his name that was like the most popular thing and like, you know, kids and people all over the world love it and it's a huge thing. But ever since then, none of his films have really had the same impact. Oh, he's just okay. kind of had a string of flops. Yep. And so now in 2016, he's returning to that franchise to make a new installment. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge thing. Anticipation all over the world is like sky high. And then it turns out there's this kid who's a fan of the films who is dying of cancer. Yep. And the kid has like started an internet petition to let him see the film early. And the director refuses to let him see the film. Oh. The director's like, no, he's not seeing the film. He's not seeing the film until I'm ready. Yep. And so basically the film is kind of, the play is kind of about the direct the producers and like the director's like girlfriend and stuff kind of coming in and trying to influence him and it's all it all kind of becomes a little bit like it yeah the lucas conundrum from the title the, the poster i think sums it up it's a figure of a man looking at posters for indiana jones 4 posters for mad max fury road yeah posters for terminator genesis for um for prometheus for star wars episode one basically for belated sequels to popular originals. Yeah. And so the Lucas conundrum of the title is referring specifically to directors, well, to belated sequels in general, but more specifically to directors coming back to their old uh, yep. Revisiting, yeah. And how often that fails. Yeah. So you've got Fury Road, which was obviously a, you know, rip-roaring success yep. um, in terms of box office and critical acclaim. But then you, as I, on the other hand, you've got Prometheus, or you've got the Star Wars prequels, yep. or you've got Indian Jones 4. You're less successful and ones. Exactly, and then the yep. ones that aren't the original director but still didn't do that well, like Terminator Genesis mm-hmm. or Tron Legacy or whatever. Yep. And so basically it's this director who's, like, the real core of his conflict is that he's grappling with the fact that, you know, he's terrified that he can't actually make a good film. Ah, and his okay. real conflict is that he doesn't want the kids to see the film because he's scared the film is shit, uh, yep. and he doesn't want the kids to die hating something that means the world to him. Oh, wow, okay. And so it kind of plays out those themes, and basically it was just a fun way to kind of explore the state of Hollywood and the state of, you know, how he just makes sequel after sequel yeah, after sequel at the moment. In. And all of, yeah, it, it's kind of just a look at what Hollywood is now and mm. what the state of the film industry is now. It's the kind of, kind of play that, like, will never get performed again because in five years' time it'll be so dated. Mm. But... For right now, at this moment, I think yeah. it should be a bit of fun. And yeah. it's funny, and people yell at each other, and there's a lot of swearing <laughs> and a lot of politically incorrect humor. Perfect. And yeah, I think, I think yeah. it should be all right. Uh, yeah. Well, all that stuff will be linked in the show notes, as always. Um, but, of course, you said it at the start, um, you're on Movie Maintenance, so the Sands Fans Radio guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's on iTunes and YouTube. Um, and then, obviously, you've got Boone Shepard coming out um, in yep. June. April, 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 sorry. Yeah, yep, yeah. April. Um, so, yeah, anyone listening, keep an eye out for that. Um, thanks for coming in and speaking to yeah, us. Hey, it's man. been, a, it's been a treasure. You. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and anything else, any closing thoughts you've got on the way out? Um, no, man. Brilliant. All right. Well, thanks again for coming. And I'm sure we'll catch you, hopefully, when your book's out and you're a multi-cajillion dollar success. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Cheers, man. That's amazing. Yeah. The visuals are very, like, well done. And, like, the gameplay is <laughs> super fun. And, like, because those three things are there, it's, like, it's exceptionally good. I could do it in a heartbeat and make millions, but it would feel like gouging my soul out. Yeah. Jurassic Park's a little more like DDR. If Shrek is a very tall creature, can he actually own land and want to kick them off? Where did that come from? You have to make a lot of shit up to make it up. Yeah. That's, like, that's just the truth. Buddy. Links to our other shows, YouTube channel.
and merchandise can be found in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening.